American Social History Podcasts are a production of the American Social History Project, Center for Media and Learning, at the City University of New York Graduate Center. This talk was given to New York City teachers as part of a professional development seminar. I think as you saw with the exercise this morning, you can think about when Lewis and Clark meet the Lakota, it's an encounter between two different ways of doing history, as you saw with the, uh, the winter counts and then the sort of written journals by the members of Lewis and Clark's journal uh, uh, trip. But you can also think about this as two different sort of streams of history coming together as well, that both Lewis and Clark and the Lakota are bringing history with them, very different histories with them. Although I want to argue somewhat provocatively that they're both heirs to an American revolution. Now, on the face of it, it's probably pretty obvious to us when we think about uh, Lewis and Clark, we can think about uh, obviously how they are heirs to an American revolution, right? They're sent out by Jefferson himself, who's the sort of leading proponent of this idea of America as a land of yeoman farmers. And they're supposed to be exploring the, the Louisiana Purchase to make it, uh, sort of open it up so that it can then be turned into family farms. Uh, but the Lakota are also heirs to an American Revolution with its own vision for the West as well. And uh, that'll become a little bit clearer what I'm talking about when we speak. Uh, the other thing I'm, I think what this points to as well, and one of the things I find hardest when I'm trying to explain history to my own students is this issue of simultaneity, which is to say there's lots of things going on at the same time, particularly if we're trying to do a history of North America that's continent-wide, and we're not just sort of looking at one little portion of it, right? Um, and if we think about American history this way, continent-wide, if we look at the 1770s, we can see it as an era of multiple American revolutions. Now, there's the one that we all know about, which is happening over on the eastern seaboard when a bunch of um, people who had previously thought about themselves as British subjects decide they no longer want to be subjects to the king. They want to have their own independent nation. But in the 1770s as well, if we cast our glimpse to the west coast, you can see the Spanish coming up the coast of what's now California. In the 1770s, they found actually 21 separate missions and six presidios and towns. They're actually uh, moving up the West Coast because they're trying to stop the Russians who are coming down from Alaska, coming down the West Coast. Uh, so there's this contest over the West Coast uh, that's going on there. And we see things that look also a little bit like uh, rev revolutions or that are interesting dates. So 1775, there's a bunch of people who are trying to cast off their colonial oppressors. Only in this case, 1775, it's a group of Indians in San Diego who are rising up against the Spanish missionaries who've been sent in among them. Another interesting date to think about, 1776, we often attach to the American Revolution. That's also when San Francisco is being founded on the West Coast. Another sort of American Revolution that we can think about is we can see if we look at the Ohio country, which would be that land just to the north of the Ohio River, which is sort of Ohio and Indiana 
uh, principally today. So just as the new states, former colonies along the Atlantic seaboard, British colonies are beginning to come together and try to form a constitution in 1786, 1787, the Indian peoples who live in the Ohio country are also coming together and they're forming what comes to be known as the uh, Ohio Confederacy. So they're also coming together into a larger government, a larger organization. The United States is putting a lot of pressure on the Ohio country during this time. Uh, the, the new government did not have a lot of money. The United States claimed the Ohio territory. Uh, it did not have a lot of money to pay its former soldiers who fought in the American Revolution. So do you know what they were offering them instead? Land. They're offering them land in Ohio uh, as a way of you know, paying off these soldiers. Uh, so for obvious reasons, the Indians in the Ohio country were anxious uh, about their land. Uh, and so, it's, so, like I said, in 1786, they come together and form the Ohio Confederacy, which is, interestingly enough, the same year that the United States is forming the Articles of Confederation, right? Uh, and they insist that the United States not do what it had been doing before, which is sign just one treaty with one tribe. But instead, you have to negotiate with all of the tribes in the Ohio Territory together. And they're doing, does anyone know, can you think why they want to do it that way? Because often what happened is they would sign an agreement with one tribe, the tribe would give away land that wasn't even really its land, right? Uh, and so they would just seek out whoever you could to kind of say, I have a treaty here which justifies my claim to this land, even though that tribe might not control that land at all, right? Um, so the members of the Ohio Confederacy, they send a message to the US Congress saying that they want peace, but also stating, quote, as landed matters are often the subject of our councils with you, a matter of the greatest importance and general concern to us, any cession of land should be made in the most public manner and by the united voice of the Confederacy, holding all partial treaties as void and of no effect. So we often, if we study this period, we often think about the US's Indian policy, which is just taking root during this time period, which you can also think that the Indians had to have a US policy, right? They had to think about how do we deal with this new nation that's uh, coming into being here. And so they, the Confederacy had a couple things they wanted to do. They wanted to have the Ohio River as a clear boundary between this new nation, the United States, and Indian territory. They wanted to reject the earlier treaties which they saw as being signed under duress and often under sort of shady circumstances. And they wanted all these treaties to be signed together. So that's one other possible American Revolution. And now I'm coming to the, the final American Revolution that I want to talk about, which also was happening in the 1770s. So here's Lewis and Clark. That's the dr dramatic painting later. And here's sort of what we have from the time period of what it looked like when they meet the Indian. This is a settling of San Francisco by the Spanish. This is a negotiations with the Ohio Confederacy. And then here, the final American Revolution, I would argue, uh, we can see in the Great Plains, 
in the territory that Lewis and Clark were exploring, which is the arrival of the horse onto the Great Plains. So you see up here, 1770, the horse spreads up into the northern Great Plains. And this was the American Revolution, the arrival of the horse and the incorporation of horse that the Lakota were profoundly shaped by. Now, it's, it's sort of, uh, I don't know if ironic is the right word, but sort of intriguing, certainly. The, the horse had originally evolved in North America. It had then migrated over to uh, Europe over one of the land bridges when that opened up during one of the Ice Ages. It then goes extinct in North America, but it's brought back by, you see here, complicated techniques of getting a horse on a ship and bringing it over, but it's so important that people would do it. Um, it's then brought back by the Spanish, and it's, it spreads really, um, it sort of rediscovers its niche in North America, it spreads very quickly. The, the Spanish are trying to prevent this spread because they realize early on this is a technological edge that they have over uh, native peoples. Um, it's useful in warfare, it's useful in communications, it's useful in transportation. Um, but the horse quickly, uh, eventually, escapes from the Spanish control. The date that most people um, situate for this in North America is 1680. Does anyone know what happens in 1680? Pueblo Revolt. Pueblo Revolt in 1680. The Pueblos in northern New Mexico um, rise up, they throw the Spanish out of New Mexico. And in this process, the Spanish leave, or a lot of them are killed, uh, and they leave their horses behind. Horses then seem to spread very quickly into other native communities. By 1720, it seems to have been in the southern Great Plains. Mexico's really right on the edge of the Great Plains, when you think about it. And then, like you saw on the map there, by the 1770s, the horse had reached northern Great Plains and all the way up into Canada. It's important to emphasize, too, that this great part of North America, the Great Plains, was really outside of European control during these years. That European control really was on the edges, mainly on the coast of the continent. So the whole part, the heart of North America, which is where the horse has now entered, this is all native land at this time. And it sets the arrival of the horse sets in motion of tremendous changes. Now, prior to the horse being there, the Great Plains had actually, and this seems ironic again, again, I guess, for us to think of the Great Plains now as sort of the breadbasket of America, but the Great Plains had been very difficult for people to live on, it had been very lightly inhabited. Um, the grass that grows so thick there, um, it was very hard to farm uh, on the Great Plains. It's not until the invention of the, the John Deere sod-busting plow that uh, you know, your Americans can even break through this thick root of mat uh, thick mat of roots, which is about six inches thick or so, and be able to get to that really rich topsoil behind underneath it. There's only a very small number of you know, um, agricultural peoples who are farming some of the river valleys where they're pretty much limited to. And there is a tremendous resource on the Great Plains besides the soil, and that would be the, the buffalo, right? Yeah, the buffalo, the bison. But it's, if you think about it, it's, if you don't have a horse, if you're trying to hunt the bison on foot, it's, they're big animals. They can weigh like a thousand pounds. It's pretty um, 
scary and pretty dangerous. Uh, and in fact, if you wanted to hunt them, you could do something like this, or the famous uh, George Catlin painting. Uh, you could also do something like this, where you would often construct a large sort of corral and try to drive them into a more confined place, where you could then get closer to them and kill them. But this obviously requires a ton of labor to construct a corral like this that can actually pull the buffalo in. Before the horse, the peoples who lived on the Great Plains really had only one domesticated animal, and that would have been the, um, the dog, exactly. So although our stereotypical image of people, of native peoples living on the Great Plains is riding you know, magnificent steed across the plains, you need to think that for most of the human history, most of the native history on the plains, they would have, in fact, have been surrounded by very large sorts of packs of dogs, something like that. Dogs were sometimes eaten as food, and if you, there are other parts of Lewis and Clark journals, if you want to share them with your students, where they, Lewis and Clark trade with Indians because they're very hungry. Uh, they trade with Indians for dogs, which they then don't eat. Um, but the dogs are also used as pack animals. And as you see here, this thing here is called the travois, where you have two sort of sticks, and then you can put a little something there. Um, now, this also had a side effect as well. These poles here, which you used, sort of would drag behind them to carry supplies, you would also use them as your tent poles for your teepee. And because the dogs are so little, the tent, the poles could only be pretty short, maybe about eight feet long. So a teepee, you have to imagine again, these sort of large teepees that you, that you imagine, uh, those could not be done with dogs. They were very small little tents that people had to live in because of the size of the poles that they could have. Um, there's other limitations to dogs as well. Um, dogs eat meat, so if you kill a buffalo, you're gonna have to give a big portion of your buffalo to the dog. Um, dogs can't carry that much. The most a dog can carry is maybe 30, 40, 50 pounds. Um, so that's not a lot of supplies. Um, and then you have to just care for a lot of dogs. If they, from what I understand, uh, most dogs, most families needed about 20 dogs to kind of get along. So you can imagine just caring for 20 dogs, which seems to have been primarily the woman's job. Uh, this would have been a kind of a huge and you're doing all this while you're trying to follow the buffalo, who, uh, of course, can migrate vast distances. Uh, and so you're walking on foot with your dogs and trying to keep them all together. So I think you can imagine for lots all the various reasons why, when the horse becomes available to Native people, they very readily embrace it and make it an integral part of their culture. Uh, generally, what happens is the horse takes on a lot of the roles that were already being occupied by the dog. And in fact, in several Plains Indian languages, the word for horse is actually derived from the word for dog. Um, so here, this comes across clearly in a little story that a Cree Indian, who would have been on the Northern Great Plains, told of when his people had first seen the horse. Our enemies, the Snake Indians of Shoshone, and their allies had big dogs on which they rode. Indian horse, big dogs on which they rode. At last, as the leaves were falling, we heard that one was killed by an arrow shot in his belly. 
Numbers of us went to see him. We all admired him. He put us in mind of a stag that had lost his horns. And we did not know what name to give him. But as he was a slave to man, like the dog which carried our things, he was named the Big Dog. So the Big Dog, and here's this is uh, another very interesting source here. Uh, this, does anyone know what this is called? This is called ledger art. And this is interesting. It derives from originally uh, peoples on the plains would paint on uh, buffalo hide. And then what this is, uh, often then they get, once they're able to get uh, manufactured paper, often from a ledger book, uh, and inks, manufactured inks, they begin to do it on paper. Uh, and so this is a, and they're quite beautiful and quite colorful, and they sort of commemorate, they're sort of like the pictographs in the winter count, only enlarged and, and more multifaceted. And this one here, can anyone figure out what's going on with it? It's commemorating when they first, so here he's got the little dog with the travois, and they're getting their first horse. They're trading with a nearby group for their first horse here. And it's important enough that they obviously want, they remember it, and they want to put it in. Um, in a painting like this. So, the, it's, I think it's fairly obvious, if you think it through, why the horse would have been, the big dog would have been an improvement over the little dog. Um, it doesn't eat the same food that humans do. So all of a sudden, all that grass that's there on the Great Plains, the horse can eat that. And that's a tremendous source of energy that you can then tap into. Um, it makes, migrating after the buffalo much easier because now everyone can be mounted and they can move much more quickly and the young and the old can move much more quickly. Um, you can learn how to hunt from horseback and they develop sort of specialized techniques for learning how to ride up right next to a buffalo. And you want to put an arrow usually like right below its shoulder and that would get its internal organs and horse, if you had a well-trained horse, it would know when it heard the twang of the bowstring, it would know to immediately veer off so that if the buffalo turned and tried to gore you, it would be there. Um, you can also see here, you can, you have a much bigger trois right? And you can carry your whole family on it. Uh, and this also means you can have a much bigger teepee, a much bigger tent, because you have much longer Um, Native peoples even go on to develop distinctive breeds of horses. This is, does anyone know what this is? Appaloosa. Appaloosa, right? This is developed by the Nez Pierce people up in Washington State who come all the way from Washington State to hunt buffalo on the Great Plains. So what's interesting to note here is Native peoples are incorporating this new technology, if you want to call it that, the new technology of the horse. But I would argue the horse, even though it comes from Europe, European peoples, it's the horse is not Europeanizing Native peoples. Native peoples are instead Americanizing the horse. They're making it their own, right? I think the stereotype is often the incorporation of outside influences is a form of cultural loss. But I think that you can see the horse is really a form of, of cultural gain. It allows for this real sort of cultural efflorescence on the Great 
claim. The other thing I want to emphasize is that the, the incorporation of a horse is in no way deterministic. By this I mean that different, there's different peoples living on the plains and they make different decisions about how they want to use the horse. So one example would be the Pawnee people, who if, if you looked in those winter counts, this is one of the frequent uh, rivals of the Lakota, right? The Pawnee people were one of those groups that had been farming in the river valleys. Uh, and so they have these sort of large earthen um, permanent structures like this that they lived in. And they would have farms of the traditional three sisters of, of uh, corn and, and beans and squash that they would farm. But they would also, when the horse arrives, they now have this opportunity to go and hunt on the Great Plains. So they will also go leave their farms at certain times of the year, go out, hunt on the Great Plains, and then they can carry all this buffalo meat back with the horse. Uh, so they can really incorporate all this new, this new source of protein into their diets uh, that way. But they also remain farmers. Now a different example would be the Comanche, Comanches are people uh, originally probably from the Great, I'm sorry, the, uh, the Rocky Mountains area. Then they're kind of pushed out originally onto the Great Plains, which was not the place to be. But they're fortunate to get there when the horse arrives. And so they quickly become uh, people who incorporate the horse. They're fortunate as well to live on the southern Great Plains, which is very good territory for, for horses. So they have very, very, they, they develop very large horse herds. And so they develop what I would call in a sort of pastoral slash raiding economy. Uh, so they, they don't farm. So unlike the Pawnee, they don't make any effort to farm. They do have a lot of horses. Uh, what they can do, they can turn their horses into food in a couple of ways. They, sometimes they take their horses, because they have large herds, and they trade them to groups like the Pueblo Indians, who live right up here, right on the edge of the Great Plains, northern New Mexico. They could trade their horses for corn and get food that way. Um, they also end up developing a kind of raiding economy. So here, they end up raiding deep into Mexico for food and uh, more horses. <laughs> Um, whatever, whatever else they feel like they need. And in fact, this argument has been made, uh, so you see here, this is, they're dominating this large territory in the 19th century. Um, they end up depopulating a lot of northern Mexico because of the raids, and the argument has been made that one reason that the United States had a fairly easy time during the war with Mexico in 1846 to 48 uh, is that a lot of northern Mexico had already been weakened by Raids, particularly those of the Comanche people. And that all really depended on the horse and the Comanche developing this raiding pastoral economy. <coughs> the last thing that the Comanches could do is they could eat their horses, and they would eat their horses as well. So the horse was a, was a form of food. So they developed this kind of pastoral uh, raiding economy around the horse. And then the last group um, is the group that we've been talking about is the Lakota. Uh, or the Sioux, um, and they develop predominantly a kind of hunting economy around hunting the buffalo that are on the Great Plains. 
and so Lewis and Clark, when they meet the Sioux, just to expand on the little bit that you got uh, in your today this morning, uh, they have a lot of early observations about the Sioux. Uh, and so in the journals I write, this great nation who the French have given the nickname of Sioux, and they describe the Sioux as, quote, stout, bold-looking people, the young men handsome and well-made, the greater part of them use bows and arrows, the warriors are very much decorated with paint, porcupine quills, and feathers, the squaws wore petticoats and a white buffalo robe with the black hair turned over their necks and shoulders. The, the term for themselves is not Sioux, as you see that's from outsiders, but it's Lakota or Lakota, which means either friendship or allies in their language. Um, they sometimes refer to themselves as a group of the seven council fires, the idea being that this is sort of a variety of different groups that have come together. They're not really a single tribe. They're a variety of sort of allied groups that have come together to help one another. Um, Sioux is actually a derogatory word from the Ojibwa, uh, which, which meant snake. Sort of, as if, you know, if someone asked the Mexicans what, what should we call those people over there, they bring those, and so you then name that tribe for bring those. You know, it's a sort of uh, outsider, insider type. The Dakota are actually not like the Comanche. They were newcomers to the Great Plains. Uh, they were not originally from the Great Plains, but in fact from the woods of northern Minnesota. And then they were then pushed out onto the Great Plains in the late, um, in the 18th century, early 18th century, they pushed out onto the Great Plains in the early 18th century by their rivals, the Ojibwa. And the reason Ojibwa can do this is they're located farther east, they have access to trade goods, particularly to guns, and they're able to have this sort of advantage over the, their rivals of the, the Dakota and are able to push them out onto the Great Plains. Now, originally, the Great Plains before the horse would have, was a bad place to be. It's sort of the undesirable real estate in the neighborhood. But the Makota had the good fortune that be pushed out more or less as the horse is coming on to the Great Plains. And they really, so you can think about them as occupying this sort of point where these two um, transformative technologies, one that's coming down from the east, the other one that's coming up from the southwest, the, the gun, which it's a little hard to read on this map here, but these various colors are showing the, the sort of progress of the gun. And then here, this is showing the progress of the horse. And the Lakota more or less occupy that point where these two trends intersect. So what was a group really of sort of refugees um, transforms themselves into this incredibly powerful horse-mounted people and it really in many respects into our our typical idea of what and what native people in the Americas were. They had been farmers in Minnesota but they then once they moved to the Great Plains and become hunters they actually abandoned farming seemingly one of those few times in world history where people actually give up farming to return uh, to a hunting sort of uh, opportunity. And so when Lewis and Clark meet them, 
they see this incredibly powerful group of horse-mounted buffalo hunters. But we need to keep in mind that probably the Lakota that Lewis and Clark are meeting had only been living on the Great Plains for about two generations. So it's a very recent development, actually. Now, previously, the dominant groups on the Great Plains had been these uh, village-dwelling people, like the, the Pawnees, or the Arikaras, or the Mandans, who Lewis and Clark spent some time with. Uh, these village-dwelling farming people on the Great Plains. Uh, but one of the other changes, which is a little, I don't think they have it on the map here, but the other thing that's happening, which made these village-dwelling people more vulnerable, is another um, companion of European arrival, and this would be smallpox. So that people, when they're dwelling in the villages, are much more vulnerable to smallpox. Uh, whereas the, the Lakota who are migratory or living in small groups on the Great Plains are much less vulnerable to smallpox. Um, so one French fur trader who lived among the Ricara estimated that in 1795 there were about 20,000 Ricara. And then after a very, there's a devastating continent-wide smallpox epidemic in the late 1700s. After the smallpox epidemic, uh, there were Instead of 20,000 people, there were only about 3,000 people. So um, the, the, the Lakota are actually expanding their numbers. They have a very high birth rate um, during these years. But the other peoples on the Great Plains are actually shrinking in the face of smallpox and in the face of sort of Lakota um, winning, basically, the contest for the Great Plains. Uh, so the Lakotas become the dominant people on the Great Plains. And then they have the final thing that they have that gives them some advantage is they, they, they then have the hides from the buffaloes, which they can then trade to outsiders. The Europeans are increasingly showing up and able to trade with this if there are any manufactured goods that they want. And so in certain respects, Lewis and Clark, I was listening to your discussion earlier, earlier, Lewis and Clark, when they're giving them these gifts, they've actually seen manufactured goods before Lewis and Clark show up. They probably have very clear ideas about what they like and what they don't like. Um, and so clearly they did not like some of the things that Lewis and Clark did. You know, uh, right? Um, so generally Americans, the, one of the fundamental points, and it's very basic, but I think it's worthwhile reminding ourselves about this, very fundamental point I'm trying to get across here is that Lewis and Clark, we often treat this uh, as the beginning of the history, right? Once Lewis and Clark show up, this is really where American history on the Great Plains begins. But in fact, as you can see, there's a very long, I don't want to call it prehistory, there's a very long history that predates the arrival of Lewis and Clark. Lewis and Clark are showing up in the aftermath of this really profound transformation that's taking place on the Great Plains with the arrival of the horse. And Lewis and Clark are able in their own way to discern the sort of new power relationships on the Great Plains. Lewis and Clark spend, uh, they, they spend the winter with the Mandans on the Great Plains. And um, they basically come to share the conclusion of the Mandans and a lot of the other native people on the Great Plains, the Lakota are kind of um, 
a little bit, they're powerful and can be a little bit unnerving. Uh, by the end of their journey, Lewis and Clark confiding in their journal that the Sioux are, quote, the vilest miscreants of the savage race and must ever remain the pirates of Missouri until such measures are pursued by our government as will make them feel dependence on its will. Unless these people are reduced to order by coercive measures, I'm ready to pronounce that citizens of the United States can never enjoy, but partially, the advantages which the Missouri represents. And so this is, I think, Lewis and Clark are actually capturing the reality of their historical moment, which is to say there's actually two young, expanding nations that are looking at these lands west of the Mississippi. One of them is the United States, right? Um, but the other one is actually Lakota, who are also expanding their realm on the Great Plains. And each of them has their competing vision for these Great Plains. Jefferson, as we talked about before, has the vision that the Great Plains should become a land of, of family farms, of human farmers. And the Lakota are also aware of the rich natural resources, but they want it to be one vast buffalo hunting ground that they control. Now, it would Lewis and Clark meet the Lakota in 1805-1806. And it takes almost three quarters of a century, it takes a long time for these two competing visions to work out. Initially, and I think this is one of the things that the, uh, the winter count gets across pretty nicely, Lewis and Clark are a little blip, right? They show up one year, there's just a small handful of people. Um, and then other years, it seems like much more important things are happening on the Great Plains from the Lakota perspective than uh, US plans for this region. And so initially, the, the advantages are really sort of on the side of Lakota. Eventually, however, just demographics and whatnot end up being on the side of the United States. But it takes, like I said, three quarters of a century really for these competing visions to sort of ultimately come to this, the resolution we can call it that, um, that they reach. Uh, Lewis and Clark meet them in 1805-06, and then it's not until 1876. This is the Mandan villages. Sorry, I'm behind on my, my, uh, my, my images here. Uh, and it's not until 1876, of course, that you have the Battle of Little Big Horn, the Battle of Greasy Grass, depending on how you want. So I just want to leave you again with this idea that the West, the, the, the standard image of the West is this wide open new land of all these new possibilities. Uh, it's an untouched land in the American mind. But in fact, it's a land that has been before, even before the first American representatives show up, has been remade by the horse, it's been remade by disease, it's been remade by manufactured goods like the rifle. It's been remade by the presence of other uh, colonial powers in North America, like the French, a lot of the early traders are French, um, and the Spanish who bring over the horse. And so often our perception is that Native peoples are not able to cope with the, the tremendous dislocations and, and new um, developments that the arrival of the Europeans present. But I think the Lakota 
present a very useful counterexample, but these are actually people who are able to uh, prosper remarkably well on the Great Plains and actually able to expand at the same time that the United States is expanding. Uh, so that's all I really wanted to say about this. I'd be happy to take whatever questions.